Hello and welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast, the conversation at the crossroads of faith and psychedelics. I'm Clint, your host, and I'm thankful and excited that you've chosen to join us. Enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 11 of the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, review, and give me a five-star rating on whatever platform you use to listen. And if your preferred platform doesn't give you that option, please take a second to hop over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube and leave me a rating, review, or comment there. I really enjoy hearing from listeners, and your engagement with the show encourages the algorithms to recommend the show to others and helps us find new listeners. Also, feel free to contact me through email at contact at thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com or find me on Twitter, Facebook, or MeWe. I don't spend much time on social media, but I do try to share new shows there and check for messages and comments regularly just to respond to listeners. Today we are joined on the podcast by Jack Call. Jack is a writer and philosopher. He received his Ph.D. in philosophy from Claremont University and taught philosophy at Citrus College in Glendora, California for 19 years. He is the author of Psychedelic Christianity and three other books on philosophy and religion. He currently serves on the vestry of St. Matthias Episcopal Church in Whittier, California and blogs on his website, The Advancement of Psychedelic Christianity, found at myiapc.com. Jack was involved late in the second wave of the psychedelic movement in the 1960s and 70s. He's a smart, kind, and interesting guy. And in this episode, he gives me a good lesson in philosophy and discusses how his Christian faith came full circle in his life and how psychedelics played a role in that. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Jack Call, welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I just discovered your work um, very recently, and I wanted to, to read you know some of your books, but I wanted to talk to you as soon as possible, and I didn't want to take the time that I don't have at the moment to start reading the material, so I just thought... Why not just get you on here and, and learn about you face-to-face and uh, share your work with my listeners. So let's get to know you a little bit. Would, could you tell us a little bit about your early life, maybe some of your spiritual influences, if there were any, maybe any connection you had uh, with Christianity or any other faith? Yeah, uh, I was born in 1949 in a little town in Texas called Heiko. And uh, my parents, we, we were Methodist. I was raised as a Methodist. Uh, growing up, it seemed like most of my friends were Baptists. And they were always inviting me to their church. But uh, I stuck to my guns and stayed a Methodist. <laughs> my father's father, my paternal grandfather, was a Methodist minister. So my dad was a preacher's kid. My mom's mother was uh, a Baptist or a pretty much devout Baptist, and her father was a not very devout Seventh-day Adventist. So that's sort of my religious, immediate religious background upbringing. 
So as a kid, I went to church. I, I, I think I enjoyed church. I felt um, kind of good afterwards, you know, kind of like cleaned and purified or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember there were some early doubts maybe or something kind of in there. Like, I think from a pretty early age, I had a fear of death or, you know, worried about death. And there's that, you know, that biblical phrase about from dust you come and to dust you'll go. And in my mind as a kid, that image of dust was like the boogeyman to me or something. So, and there's some joke about, you know, some kid seeing dust under his bed and saying, somebody's either coming or going. <laughs> and so I had this, I remember as a kid, I had this feeling, which I call the dusty feeling, which was, I guess it was sort of like depression or something. It was like, it was probably just worrying about mortality, you know, even though our religion taught that we have life everlasting, but I guess I had my doubts about it or didn't quite believe it or something. Well, even if you believe in eternal life, you know, you we're all so connected to our physical body that it, you know, it can be unnerving for a lot of people to acknowledge that separation from the body. Yeah. I mean, it still is, but the the religion definitely helps. (laughs) But by the time I was, I was around 14 years old and had a friend who sort of my best friend and we would often, I'd spend the night at his house. He had a room that was kind of separate from us, the house. So it was like, it was fun because we could kind of do whatever we wanted to in there. And we would go for long walks and stuff like that. And he, I discovered to my shock and surprise, he was an atheist. And, you know, one of these late night conversations, he was talking about evolution and you know he had this sort of stock atheist view uh that science is the the, tells us all we need to know and there's no good reason to believe in god and so we were having this kind of conversation and i was sort of defending belief in god but he brought up the devil you know says well do you believe in the devil and i'd already sort of decided this was one thing that didn't make sense to me i think i was always kind of a philosopher (laughs) that a loving God could allow the devil to take you, influence you so that you would go to hell and be punished forever. I, I couldn't see how that could be reconciled. How, how would a loving God allow that to happen? And while I was having this conversation with him, I, first of all, I just decided, you know, I don't believe in the devil. You know, like, I don't believe in hell. And then he kept on and pretty soon I stopped, you know, I said like, well, where is God? And how do you know there's a God and all this stuff? And I started like just in my imagination trying to visualize God and, and, and think, well, where is God? And how do I know there's a God there? And I just suddenly decided, oh, I don't believe in God. There's, there's no God up there. And it, was, it felt like a sense of liberation. And I think what it was was liberation from that fear of hell, you know, the fear that I would be doing something wrong that even though I, you know, I knew I was that God forgives us, but there still was that threat of hell. Also, I think being a teenager, there's this feeling of social control that comes from the church and especially about sex. And so the, the liberation was kind of like, oh, I can do whatever I want. There's not, not this thing hanging over me that's watching me all the time and is going to see anything I do wrong. I can just get away with anything. <laughs> Unless, I, I mean, except, of course, I have to worry about other people mm-hmm. catching me. Not that I had all kinds of nefarious desires or anything, 
but just I had that worry about sinning, I guess. So I decided at that point I was an atheist. And I didn't, I didn't tell my parents, of course, because that would have entailed a, a visit to the minister and the talking to. And, you know, I'd be facing these adults trying to defend myself and they'd be browbeating me. And it just, I, I didn't want to do that. So I kind of, I kept that from them and still kept going to church. And I was involved, I was in the Methodist Youth Fellowship and everything, even though in my, in my mind, I was an atheist. So I actually remained an atheist for a long time. I mean, most of my life, officially an atheist in my mind. But the thing that made a big difference was when I was 19, I took LSD. Well, I took mescaline first. That gave me a whole new light on religion, spirituality, the meaning of life, philosophy, everything. So uh, even though I was still officially in my mind an atheist, I, I got very interested in religion, but like Eastern religion, mm-hmm. then Buddhism, Vedanta, Hinduism, started reading Alan Watts a lot. Uh, he was sort of my hero at that point. Before that, when I was still an atheist, before I took psychedelics, I, I, the thing that was fashionable intellectually was existentialism. And uh, so I read Sartre's Being in Nothingness when I was in high school didn't understand a lot of it, you know, but I got a feeling from it. And then I, and then I read Albert Camus, the French existentialist, also, who was also an atheist. Camus is a very, he, he's a very good writer, and he has a, a, a kind of a lyricism. And he, the famous book, philosophical book that I read to him was called The Myth of Sisyphus. You know, the myth of Sisyphus is Sisyphus is condemned to roll this big stone up the hill. And as soon as he gets to the top, finally makes it up, up there after great effort, the stone rolls back down again. And then he just has to keep repeating that forever. So it's this futile task that he's condemned to. And Camus described that as if from Sisyphus's point of view, how Sisyphus could, despite that condemned fate, could embrace his fate and in some sense sort of defy it, but not by not doing it, but by just deciding that, okay, this is, this is my life. This is, this is the way things are. And I accept. A lot of, a lot of kids in your, in your situation as a young person, when you were still quote unquote stuck in the Methodist church, to some degree, you were kind of doing that Sisyphus thing. You know, you were still going through the motions, going with your parents, although you had a divergent thought process you know, you just kept doing that thing because it was at least at that moment in your life, somewhat fated for you to be there. Yeah. You can resist it and endure even more pain, in my opinion, usually, you know, when you're, yeah. when you're in that, when you're in that well, situation. I, that, I never made that connection that you just made. And that, that seems right though. So thanks for that. So that was before your psychedelic experiences? Experiences. So I was an existentialist atheist. Right. And I, well, I couldn't understand was why there, there were also Christian existentialists. And I thought, what? How does that work? And so I wasn't, I didn't read them very much. I thought, you know, I know Christianity's false now, so I don't need to worry about that. And Camus talks about the absurd. You know, the human condition is absurd, which is what he meant by that. We know we're going to die. We want to be infinite. We want eternal life. We want to go on forever. But we know we can't have that. And that's what's absurd about our situation. It doesn't make sense to us, but that's just the way it is. And so like Sisyphus, we just have to embrace our fate and we can be sort of heroic about it. 
and he writes about it beautifully. So it makes you feel like, yeah, this is a good thing. I'm a hero. I'm facing my fate. I'm not deceiving myself like these other people are and so on. That and you were still in Texas at that time. No, that was after we'd already moved to California because I was in high school by that time. And I'm, we moved out here when I was in the ninth grade. So we weren't in Texas anymore. So this is the late 1960s, early to mid 1960s. Okay. Maybe we moved out here in 1964. So, uh, and I was um, in the ninth grade and, you know, I graduated in 67, which was just the, the summer of love was 1967. So things changed very fast. Yeah. This whole psychedelic revolution or whatever you want to call it was stirring, was coming to the fore. And so I went from, you know, existentialism and sort of the beatnik thing, kind of thing to uh, also, you know, the hippie thing. So in my senior year of high school, I still hadn't taken psychedelics, but I had smoked pot. And by the next year, 1968, that was when I first took mescaline. And so, but before that, I was getting interested in psychedelics. Other people were talking about it and there was lots of publicity about it. You know, you'd see stuff on TV about it and magazines and pretty favorable coverage. I mean, it wasn't like there was definitely, you know, some worries about it and, and people knocking it down and saying, you know, people who hadn't done it, right? Saying, don't be fooled by this and so on. But there was a lot of favorable publicity about it. In fact, you know, it didn't become illegal. I think it was 1966 that it became illegal. So, you know, at first it was even, it wasn't even illegal. And then when it became illegal, okay, now the official line is it's horrible and you know, nobody should do it and everything. But by that time, my friends and I, we'd already seen through, <laughs> we didn't believe the government, you know, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So my, you know, so some of my friends managed to get some marijuana and I was interested in that. And a friend, my best friend and I finally got our chance to try that and we enjoyed it. It was fun. Then I, my best friend took LSD. He was very interested in it and, you know, did a lot of reading about it. We read Alice Huxley's um, The Doors of Perception and Heaven and Hell. We read lots of books about drugs that were just coming out and available. And, and connecting them, you know, like Aldous Huxley does right away, Aldous Huxley made a connection with religion and said that he thought that was the best interpretation of the meaning of it or, you know, that it, it was a religious thing. Um, so I was already thinking of it that way, even though I was an atheist, supposedly, I started thinking that, you know, this can lead to mystical experience. I became an, interested in this idea of mystical experience before I ever had one. You know, I, I read about people who had these transcendent experiences. And my friend was a member of, well, his, yeah, I guess he was a member too, but mainly his mom was a member of the Self-Realization Fellowship, which is a founded by Paramahansa Yogananda. It's a Hindu influence, Vedanta. They practice Kriya Yoga uh, meditation and to achieve transcendent states of consciousness. Uh, so he already, in his background, had that sort of orientation towards the Hindu sort of view of things. You know, I learned about that stuff from him. And then he took LSD before I did. And there was a time before this, just shortly before this, when I was with a high school group, there was a, a speech teacher who organized a trip to Mexico. 
with a bunch of us students who were in his classes. And we bought these trucks from the Navy. They were mail trucks that the Navy had used and they were on sale at an auction. We got them real cheap, converted them into campers. We had two of them, drove down into Mexico. I mean, deep into Mexico, all over Mexico. It was a great adventure for a high school kid. It was like so much fun. We did drink. That was sort of one of my first experiences with alcohol or very much. And, you know, we, this guy let us get away with all kinds of stuff. And we'd, we'd get drunk and stuff. But I remember meeting a guy who was there in Mexico looking for psychedelic mushrooms. And he told us about it. And this was before I'd heard very much about it at all. And I thought, oh my God, this guy is crazy. You know, that is the, you know, he's going to get, he's going to die or, you know, who knows what, you know, mushrooms can kill you. And, but like, about a year later so that was like 1965 or 66 and then by 67 i was already like convinced there's something to this and it sounds very interesting maybe i might try that was traveling in mexico like that considered like a safe and normal thing to do by american standards uh more so than it is than it would be now i think because there weren't these drug gangs and Mm -hmm. you know there wasn't so much organized crime like there is now in Mexico, but we did take machetes with us. We all had machetes. So we were this gang of high school kids with machetes and they attacked us. They would have been sorry. I think, you know, unless they had guns, I don't know, but it didn't happen. We were, we were fine. So I think it was safer then. And we weren't really, I wasn't scared or anything. Chris, Teenage boys are never scared. Well, they are, but they're not scared of the right things. <laughs> right, right. Sure. There are things they shouldn't be scared of and not scared of things they should be scared of. So you came anyway, across Mex- uh, mescaline first? or? Uh, yeah, that was in um, 1968. A friend of mine, and she was also a friend of my other friend I was talking about who was an SRF. She was a student at UCLA. And uh, we were visiting her. She, well, she told us that she, she had taken LSD. And, and my friend had also taken LSD. I hadn't taken anything, any, well, except for marijuana. I, I can't remember if we arranged this in advance or if it just came up while I was there. But anyway, we were visiting her in an apartment of a friend of hers near UCLA in Westwood. And she had some mescaline. So I thought, yeah, I'm going to try it. And it lived up to everything I had hoped it would be. It was an amazing experience. It was beautiful. I saw things that I'd never seen before. It made the whole world seem new. I saw colors that I think I'd never seen before. Everything seemed brightly colored, fresh, new, aesthetically pleasing to the highest degree. It was just an amazing experience. I can't remember anything negative about it at all. There may have been some moments of anxiety or something at first. I don't remember, but I just remember that it was, I remember saying, I didn't think it would be so much fun. It actually was just fun, which I wouldn't say that overall about psychedelic trips, but that that one was, and I think it's partly because, because it was the first time and I, I didn't really know what to expect, even though I had read all about it. And I mean, had an idea of you know, people's descriptions of the experience and everything. So I had expectations. I had good expectations going in, but it even exceeded those. I mean, it was like, this is the real thing. 
What kind of form was that in? Was it like a tablet or? It was a capsule, I think. And so after that, then I right away wanted to take another trip. And uh, my second trip was sort of a classic bad trip. And it was on LSD. But it's not because it was LSD. It was because of the situation. So my friend wanted to take a trip. He, He didn't take anything that that night when I took mescal, I think I was the only one. So the other people were kind of like guides. So that made it seem safer too, I think, to me. But he he was kind of envious because he could tell I was having such a good time and that made him want to do it again right away. So it might've been the very next weekend or at the most two weeks after that. He lived with his mom in Venice, California. I, he, that's not where I live, but I often would go over on weekends and spend the night there and you know spend the day, spend the weekend there. And his mom was um, absent a lot and somewhat sympathetic. She, I think she knew that we were taking psychedelics or at least that we did it sometimes. I don't think she thought we did very much, but she wasn't around anyway when we were there. So he wanted to do it. But I was on a Sunday and I had to be back that night because next day was a school day. We were going to college. I was going to college, but it was the next day of school day. I was still living at home and um, I told my parents I'd be back for dinner that night or something like that. So I thought, well, a trip lasts about eight hours. We take it this morning. I'll be down by then. I can drive home. It'll be okay. But that was really dumb, of course, because as soon as I took it, started feeling the effects, I thought, wait, this idea of being down in a certain number of hours was like, whoa, I have no control over that. I I don't know what's going to happen. And I just really started worrying about that and focusing on that. And because I was trying, I was fighting it, you know, it's like, I really didn't want to be tripping right then. I, I really wanted to be back to my normal state of consciousness, but of course it's too late once you've taken it and you're feeling the effects. My friend was having a fine time. He was tripping and, you know, having a good trip. And I was like just suffering because, because I was fighting it. And so I actually got sick, nauseated. And it was just a, a bummer. You know, I didn't enjoy it at all. But that didn't deter me because, that, because of that first trip. It was like I knew that, okay, I understand why this turned out to be a bad trip because I'll never again take it when I think I have to be somewhere later that day or have to be down by a certain time or anything like that. I only do it if I know there's, it's sort of an open-ended schedule and I can you know, not worry about that. And so I had plenty more trips uh, and most of them were good. And overall, it was great. I mean, it, it, it was my religion. I wish I could convey sort of the spirit of the times it seemed like you know, more and more friends that you knew had taken psychedelics. They knew what you were talking about. And it was like a, like a brotherhood and sisterhood. It, I mean, I think I can identify very much with the, the early Christians' enthusiasm. Miracles were happening, and they had this sense of liberation from the fear of death. And that's how we felt. It seemed like a new world. It was like day and night from the way it had been before. Uh, it seemed like weird, like society somehow, it, I thought it would never loosen up somehow, peace and love, <laughs> the age of Aquarius, all that stuff. Right. If you've yet to see the negative influence of drugs over the next, say, 20, 30, 40 years, um, it's e- very easy to understand how positive and how enthusiastic and optimistic you know, people at that time would have been. They saw this peace movement. They felt, you know, a camaraderie amongst people in the movement. Yeah. 
to that point, it was, you know, there wasn't a lot of negative publicity. So it seemed like here's something that really works. You know, all these things, ads you see all the time that are trying to sell you something. And you know darn well, if you buy those things, they're not going to make you happy. And it's still that way. I mean, you know, uh, but here was one thing that got, that was sort of advertised, uh, not on, you know, not on commercials on TV, but by Timothy Leary and friends of yours and things like that, people who tell me about it, that turned out to live up to all the hype uh, and more so, you know, it was like even better than I had imagined. But of course there was this, then some negative things started rolling in and, you know, there was, oh, you know, Charles Manson and, uh, and then rock stars dying of overdoses, which didn't have, they weren't dying from psychedelics. Right. But there was that dumb thing of lumping all drugs together which the government did, but also, you know, the establishment did that because they didn't know the difference. But then also these celebrity rock stars also didn't seem to know the difference. They would start off with psychedelics and then they'd start taking heroin or something, you know, and people I associated with always thought that was really stupid. Like this is not the same thing as heroin or cocaine or uppers or downers or any of those other things as a totally different class of drugs. And, you know, we didn't, I didn't understand why people would confuse the two and, 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 and get into those really bad drugs, which I did and still do think are bad drugs. I know what you said in, in your interview, which I listened to, you don't necessarily have to think of them as bad drugs, but they certainly lend themselves to bad abuse. Right. Uh, right. There's certainly a, um, they're more likely to end up, in an abusive situation, for sure. Yeah. I mean, they really are addictive. Physically. Yeah, they're physically addictive. And I think to a large degree, more debilitating. You know? Yeah. And also, there's just a much higher risk of overdosing. I mean, with, with LSD, there's practically zero risk. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it is possible that you could. It would be such a tremendous dose, though. It's like... I'd- I think Albert Hoffman would have overdosed if that was possible, given his uh, exposure level. Uh, yeah. And well, there've been, I've read about people taking just insane doses and it's, I mean, I would never want to do that, but, um, as far as I know, nobody has died of an overdose of LSD. I don't, I just think that's never happened. And, and marijuana, same thing, but marijuana is even safer as far as, I mean, that's just, I think it's practically impossible to overdose on marijuana you know, to die from that. But heroin, all you got to do is take, I think, like three times the amount that would get you high and it'll kill you. Right. Fentanyl is even worse. And, and cocaine is not, not that bad, but it's certainly, it's about on the level of alcohol, which can also kill you. Mm-hmm. you take, if you take 10 times the amount of alcohol, it'll get you drunk and that'll kill you. And people die from that, you know, not besides that, you know, of course, cirrhosis of the liver and other diseases, but it's really dumb to think of drugs versus no drugs, you know, right. like, and, and even if you look at it on the simplest level, like what about life-saving drugs? You know, those are drugs too. And they're not, they're legal, of course, uh, but the illegal drugs, um, just because they're all illegal, doesn't mean they're all the same at right. all. And many of those, quote, life-saving drugs would be deadly at high doses also, but people just tend not to use them at that level. Right. They have risks also. Yeah. So you were still in college at that point. How did your 
you know, academic career progress? Well, um, when I first started college, I was a, I decided I'd be a music major because I played the piano. I love music. And I thought that'll be a really fun thing to major in. And, you know, I'll be a musician. But I didn't enjoy my music classes that well. And I had a, I had a bad teacher who made it seem not fun at all. Seemed like just like music majors have to work harder than anybody else. And, and it seemed like that was true. Like you got very few units for tons of work. And then I took my first philosophy class and I thought, wow, I can't believe it. You mean there's actually a class where people, you get to ask these questions, all these things I've been wondering about, but nobody ever wants to seem to talk about. And so I switched to a philosophy major and that fit with tripping also because I wanted to figure things out. Uh, and philosophy just asks all those questions. Um, so I majored in philosophy and graduated in four years with a BA in philosophy. So I was, I, I read a lot. I read all of Alan Watts' books. You know, he's like an interpreter of Zen Buddhism and Hinduism and um, Taoism. But he's also steeped in Christianity. So. Well, he, he was originally an, an Anglican priest, but um, so he does have a Christian background, and he wrote books about that, too. But by the time he was writing about Zen, he was really, I don't think he was really a Christian anymore. Like he wrote a book called The Supreme Identity. The Supreme Identity is about that Hindu teaching that summed up in the Sanskrit phrase, tat vamasi, which means that thou art, which is that the, the Atman, which is the individual, your soul, is identical with Brahman, the ultimate reality. So it's saying you are that ultimate reality. In, in Western terms, it's like saying you are God. That's sort of what I believed because he's, he's a good writer too and very convincing. So I kind of thought of it like that. Like the idea is that, that I'm God, but I've forgotten that I'm God. You know, we're all sort of God in disguise playing these roles. Sort of God incarnates in each one of us and um, forgets that he's God. And sort of the goal is to, to remember that you really are ultimate reality. You're not divorced. You're not separate from it at all. You're actually it. And this present moment, this world, just as it is, is nirvana in Buddhist terms or is your Brahman, you know, this is ultimate reality, which all sounds good. So that's kind of what my thinking was. And psychedelics are a way of realizing that peak psychedelic experience. That's what you learn. You know, I kind of thought, although I did, Christianity was sort of creeping back in and God, because in my philosophical studies, I, I realized, you know, philosophers, Western philosophers talked about God a lot. In Western Europe, Western European philosophy from the Middle Ages up until the Enlightenment and even beyond that somewhat, they were all Christians, or at least they were all theists. One of my early uh, philosophy classes when I was, had become a philosophy major, the professor, was very, he'd written a book about the ontological argument for the existence of God. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but that's, it's a sort of fascinating argument. It, it, a lot of people think of it as sort of a trick, but um, the argument goes like this. I can conceive of a being than which none greater can be conceived, the supreme being. I, I have this concept. I can conceive of it that there could be a being that's greater than any other being. You know, anything, any supreme quality you want to think of it, 
this being has it and any negative or derogatory quality this being does not have it. Now there's no contradiction in that concept. So that means it's logically possible there could be such a being. At least at first, it seems like I could, I could raise the question, well, but does this being actually exist? Or is this just in my imagination? Is it just in my mind I'm conceiving it? Or does it really exist just as much as this rock exists or my body exists? If it only exists in my mind and my imagination, then it would not be the supreme being because existing in actuality is greater than existing only in my imagination. Therefore, the one that I'm imagining, that I'm conceiving of as the greatest, the supreme being, that, than which none greater can be conceived, does exist in actuality. That's another name for God. Therefore, God exists. Now, that argument's been attacked and defended, you know, argued about forever since uh, maybe the 11th century, something like that, or the 14th century, some, you know, way back in the way, the St. Anselm of Canterbury. But it's not easy to refute, I'll tell you that. Even though a lot of people think it has been, that it is easy to refute. And they say, you know, Kant argued this as a, existence is not a predicate. So saying that it exists in reality doesn't really add anything to the concept. So that doesn't really make it greater. But I'm sorry, I just don't find that convincing. It's, it's like, it does seem like it would be greater to exist in reality because something that exists in reality actually is that thing. Right. Something that exists only in my imagination isn't really that thing that I'm imagining. You know, it's just a figment of my imagination. So I remember thinking about this on an acid trip once. I, I took a lot of trips, but there, there's certain ones that stand out. And like to this day, I have these vivid memories of certain moments from those trips. And that was one of them. By the way, I, I wrote about this on my website. Um, it's called One Day in 1969. So if anybody's interested, they can actually read. I, I fictionalized the account somewhat because when you're writing about real people, you feel like you're invading their privacy. And so I use fictional names. And also you realize that when you're trying to give a detailed narrative of something like history, um, you're really falsifying it to some extent, almost inevitably. Right. By trying to tell the whole story because you're, you're, you're sort of forced to fill in some details that you, you don't really remember exactly how it went, but to tell a story in a nice vivid way that makes a good story, you, you want to fill in some, you, you, I felt free in writing this. I decided to do it this way to actually maybe invent some details. Right. I couldn't remember exactly how it was. I, I made out as if I could, you know, so yeah, it requires a certain amount of shorthand. Yeah. So instead of describing a whole day, maybe you can sum up that day by just acknowledging one scenario, you know, and that scenario may be fictitious, but it embodies the reality of that whole day. And so it's a kind of a shorthand. for almost the opposite of that, because it's like there were moments I could remember for sure. And I could honestly say this is exactly what happened. But telling the story of the whole day um, required filling in the gaps between those moments <laughs> to give the feeling of that whole day also seemed important to me, like by sort of telling this whole narrative, you know. But anyway, so I'm just trying to give you a, this picture of where I was at when one day I was on a walk. I went to a bookstore that I sometimes went into, and I saw this book called the Boohoo Bible. The Boohoo Bible, the New American Church Catechism by Art Kleps. And I had heard of the New American Church a little bit. I didn't know much about it. But I looked at this book. 
um, I'll show you a picture of the cover. I know our listeners can't see it, but I can describe it. It's uh, sort of almost cartoon. Well, it is cartoonish. It looks like a comic book. Yeah. It looks like a comic book. And the cover of it shows the destruction of the planet Saturn. <laughs> uh, these rocket ships going up to the planet Saturn and blasting it and destroying it. And there's this whole crazy thing about destroying the planet Saturn, which is, I didn't know how to take it exactly, but is it kind of a joke? I think it seemed kind of like a joke, um, but. Is it um, like an allegory for something? You know, astrologically, the planet Saturn is supposed to be sort of the source of all depression and, and conformity and rigidity and, and that sort of thing. So it was like the destruction of all of that is what that represented. Anyway, it's this, um, Art Klaps was a um, school psychologist uh, in, what year was that? Early 60s, anyway. He, like me, had read, he was older than me, but um, he had read about psychedelics and, you know, and was interested. He took mescaline, had a transformative experience, uh, got in contact with Timothy Leary at Harvard, Timothy Leary, before he got into psychedelics, he was, you know, already a famous psychologist. And one thing, one thing he was famous for was a, psych, a personality test that he had devised. So Art Kleps wrote and created sort of a, a humorous, sort of a joke thing called he called the neo psychopathic personality test. And parts of it are in the Boohoo Bible. It's, it's sort of funny. And he'd sent that to Timothy Leary, which apparently Leary was amused by. And at this point, Leary had um, had been fired from Harvard, he and Richard Alpert and Ralph Metzger, and they had been invited to set up an estate of this very wealthy people in New York, not way upstate New York, but you know, north of New York City, called Millbrook. So Timothy Leary had sent a postcard inviting Art to visit Millbrook. Art moved into Millbrook, well, he visited and then actually moved there and started the New American Church there. Art's father was a Lutheran minister, so he definitely had a Christian background, but he was very much a rebel, a beatnik, probably an existentialist and all that stuff before he took mescaline. And then at Millbrook, he took a really big acid trip, like a thousand micrograms uh, that somebody actually bombed him with. He didn't deliberately take it. Somebody put it in his drink and he drank it and, and just wham, you know. His official philosophy was called solipsistic nihilism. This is his way of describing or interpreting what he learned on that big trip. Now, solipsism is the view that the only thing that exists is the mind of the thinker. So it's like using the dream analogy. It's like saying everything is my dream, like you're a character in my dream. But in effect, I'm a character in my dream too. I mean, the whole thing is just dreamed up. Uh, nothing is real. So that's where the nihilism comes in. Nothing is really real. All I can know is my own experiences, and I can't know there's really anything outside that in sort of an objective reality. So actually, nothing really exists. Everything's an illusion. Everything's a dream. But on art's interpretation, that's supposed, that's supposed to be liberating. <clears throat> that's supposed to be what the Buddha realized. That's supposed to be what Jesus realized. So the church was not really a Christian, definitely was not a Christian church. The original principles, if I can, I'll just tell you what they said. Principle number one says, <clears throat> everyone has the right to expand his consciousness 
and stimulate visionary experience by whatever means he considers desirable and proper without interference from anyone. Principle number two says, the psychedelic substances such as LSD are the true host of the church, not drugs. They are sacramental foods, manifestations of the grace of God, of the infinite imagination of the self with a capital S and therefore belong to everyone. And principle number three said, we do not encourage the ingestion of psychedelics by those who are unprepared. So to be a member of the New American Church, you just you have to agree to those three principles. So I bought this book because it was very, it looked really interesting. There's a lot of interesting stuff in there. And there was a card in it with a membership application. So I thought, yeah, I agree with those things. Signed it, mailed it in. There was also a little on one of the lines that says, want to be a boohoo. That's what the, the, the ministers in the church are called boohoos. And Art Claps was the chief boohoo. He explained that he didn't want us to take ourselves too seriously. We don't want it to become just another heavy institution, Saturn-like, right? So we, we got to keep it light. And that's why that title is kind of silly sounding. Uh, and we had all kinds of titles, fancy titles. Um, my last title was, I was Metaphrast of Emanations. And my wife was Trans Ultra Meta Super Pan Hyper Sebastocrator. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a lot of fun in it. And Art had a, a good sense of humor, but he was also deadly serious about defending the use of psychedelics for religious purposes. He, he really believed that he'd become enlightened on this LSD trip and he had something to teach. And, it was, and he called it that philosophy of solipsistic nihilism. So I joined the church and at first we were just like a mail order thing and we would get more or less monthly bulletins of stuff that he'd written. And then um, Mary Jo, that's my wife and I, uh, we made up some little things that, that we called anti-tracks that were sort of like parodies of religious tracks that you would give to people. Uh, and mail those to him and he thought those were funny and so he you know we got kind of more and more involved that way and then at one point he, he sent a letter that said I think all the talented people in the church should move to Vermont that's where he was he was in Vermont I found out later he's I mean he, he he's moved all over the place I mean and once we joined we moved all over the place too but we my wife taught in a music school that had a branch in Burlington Vermont she got a job and I, I got a job at the unemployment office after going there enough times. <laughs> I actually got a job as trying to help other people find jobs. And I just had a bunch of crappy jobs that I didn't really enjoy and never felt good about that until much later when I went back to graduate school and got a PhD in philosophy and then became a philosophy professor. And I finally got a job that I really enjoyed. And what kind of community did he have established there as well? Well, it wasn't not not never very big. So at that time, there were just three people: the chief boohoo, the chief behe, his wife, and an, a guy named Lynn Macbeth, who was sort of like his secretary, you might say. And uh, and then us when we moved there. So to start with, there were five people, and then uh, another guy joined, and then more people started coming. A few, you know, so, but it was never a large number of people in one place. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of members throughout the country, mail order members like we had been, right. who would pay their dues and they'd get the divine toad sweat. That was the name of the church bulletin. And um, we're involved that way. And then some of them would 
come, you know, because they were invited to move to Vermont. So a few showed up. And then later we went to, we moved to upstate New York. And uh, again, people were invited to come camp on the lakes that summer. And some people showed up. And so there's always, you know, it's always a very small group of really active people. And then a much larger group of semi-active people who were just, they could say they're members of the New American Church, but they didn't really know what it was like because <laughs> it was a totally different thing when you actually are living sort of under the direction of the chief boohoo, because he believed in the guru system where, you know, there's a teacher or the teacher-student relationship like Jesus and the disciples or Buddha and his followers or any Hindu guru and the devotees of that guru, where the, the guru or the teacher is there for you to learn from. I mean, the reason you go there is because you think that person has some wisdom that you don't have. And therefore you should, you should obey them. You should do what they say. And that's the way you're going to learn. If you, if you go there thinking oh, you're just friends, that's not what it is. And we learned that the hard way right off the bat, because right away, he had this idea that we were going to all live together. We were going to try to rent a big farmhouse. He would use our resources plus theirs, which weren't much on either side, but pooling our resources, we would get a house and all live together in the same house. And we weren't so sure we wanted to do that. He hadn't said anything about that before. And all of a sudden, now we're there. Now we're committed. We left everything, brought everything there. And now he sort of had us. <laughs> And so when we said, we're not sure we want to, shouldn't we get to know each other better first before we move in together or something? That was like, uh, no, that didn't go. So he kicked us out and told us, you know, don't come back until you hear from Glenn or me. And then we got a letter or we, Glenn contacted us and told us, you know, he wants an apology. And he set up this whole new protocol system where we're going to use titles and uh, you have to address him as your highness and so on and so forth. So then we got this protocol statement that described all these rules about how you had to treat him and everything. It was kind of formalized, but still there was a sense of humor about it, you know, and there was sort of a light touch about it. And, and we had to write this letter of apology, which we did, because at first we were thinking, screw this. We're just going to, I don't know what we're going to do, but this is not what we expected. We don't want to go. We didn't, I didn't really want to go. I didn't think, but I, well, why was I going back there? You know, but I kind of thought, well, I should see this through. Now, I shouldn't just quit right now. I should see what's going to come of this. And so, so that's what we did. And then we did end up moving into a house with them, but we only lived there about four or five months uh, before he decided that wasn't really working very well. And then they moved to a different place and we moved to a different place, but we we're still in touch with each other and saw each other regularly. And we were totally involved in the church's work and everything. So I wrote a book about that whole experience called Life in a Psychedelic Church. After I got out of the church much later, like in 1987, I think is when it was published first. And I recently republished it. I mean, there was all kinds of adventures and experiences, but um, eventually I became disillusioned with that church. Well, one question, you don't have to go into any of the details. I was just curious, was psychedelic use within the quote-unquote church was that a regular practice yeah good question <laughs> um not as much as you'd think i mean i took a lot more trips before we moved back to vermont than i did there and i was expecting that i was just thinking well we would i mean the way he wrote about it you would think we would have services where we would all take the sacrament together on a pretty much regular basis but that didn't happen at all 
and I never took a trip with him where we were both tripping. I was there when he was tripping on at least one occasion. And there were times where he had just done it somewhere else. And then I was with him. And then there were times when I took it and he didn't, or my wife and I took it and he and his wife didn't. We never really got together on that level. And he did with some other people. I, I guess we didn't click in the right way for that to happen, but he was still my teacher and then he still, we were still important. I mean, I became like his right-hand man later on. I mean, you know, I was like the second highest in the church kind of thing, and, but I never actually took a trip where he and I, or he and his wife and me and my wife were tripping together. And we didn't take very many trips and he didn't either. So my sort of tapering down on psychedelic views actually began when we moved back and got more active in this psychedelic church, ironically. But we did take some trips over in that church. And one quite big, one of my other biggest ones came while I was still in that church. But so, yeah, that's, it's not what people expect. And I think when people read that book, they're probably surprised to find that out. Or like you read, there's all this stuff going on, all these adventures and stuff, but there weren't that many trips actually, surprisingly. Well, I don't, I mean, I don't want to necessarily compare apples to apples with what was going on there as to say your local church down the street. But I think a lot of people, you know, average go to church Sunday folks, you know, view like their pastor or their priest as this, you know, consummate spiritual figure who's praying day in, day out. And, you know, honestly, most of their life is spent like the rest of us paying bills, you know, making yeah. sure all the details of life are dealt with, sending out the email newsletter, making sure, you know, the local homeless community is taken care of. It's not all just, uh, you know, hanging out with Jesus. A lot of it's very mundane, you know, just circumstantial details. Well, see, it, it really wasn't mundane <laughs> because uh, because of Art's personality. I mean, he, he he's, he, I sort of learned later through reading, there's a, there's another book about Millbrook. Art wrote a book about his time at Millbrook called Millbrook. The original subtitle was The True Story of the Early Years of the Psychedelic Revolution. Uh, later editions, he changed that subtitle to be, he dropped the word revolution and called it uh, The Early Years of American Psychedelianism. And I think that was maybe a good move because the word revolution is too loaded and revolutions tend to be very bad things. <laughs> Uh, in general. But there was also another book about that period, which I read just not that long ago, maybe a year or two ago, by a guy named Ted Druck. I think it's called Timothy Leary and the Mad Men of Millbrook. So Ted Druck was another guy who lived at Millbrook, and he knew Art Klepps well. It was more like just a friend relationship. With Art it wasn't like his guru or anything. In fact, Ted Druck's guru was an, a man named Bill Haynes, who really was a guru in the classic sense, they had a, an ashram and his devotees were mainly ex-junkies, a drug addict, people who had drug problems and they came to him and joined his ashram and adopted this Hindu version, Hindu interpretation of things and got off bad drugs that way. And he was a very supremely autocratic, harsh, dictatorial-like guru. When you, you read about him in Ted Druck's book and also in our arts book, Millbrook. So the three major figures at Millbrook, I've learned at least from the points of view of Art Klaps and Ted Druck. So at least I have two separate accounts that seem to agree on this. 
the major figures at Millbrook were Timothy Leary, Art Klaps, and Bill Haynes. Most people have heard of Timothy Leary. A lot of people have heard of Timothy Leary. He's very famous. Uh, Art Klaps and Bill Haynes, not so much. But Bill Haynes probably least of all. But for the people who were living at Millbrook, those were the three leaders. And, and Timothy Leary himself was not even there a lot of the time. He was off doing various things, uh, publicizing LSD in every way he could and all kinds of different venues and everything. But when he was there, he was the guy in charge because he's the one who'd been invited there by the owners of the place, who were also the other major figures, Tommy and Billy Hitchcock and their sister, Peggy Hitchcock. They were the multimillionaires who owned the place, but they had invited Timothy Leary there. So if anybody got in their bad favor, they would be kicked out. So, you know, that's who was really in charge. And then spiritually speaking, Timothy Leary, Art Claps, and Bill Haynes were in charge of their various individual groups. Timothy Leary had the League for Spiritual Discovery. Art Claps had his New American Church. And Bill Haynes had his ashram. And life at Millbrook sounds very interesting. Uh, very chaotic in a way, but you know, uh, that, that book by Ted Druck is worth reading too. It's pretty interesting. Once you separated from the church and wrote your book about your life there, you know, where did you go from there? Oh yeah. Or, or why I got disillusioned with the church, maybe yeah. what, what, what life was like, you know, that how it was not mundane because we were always, well, basically art always had a fight going with somebody about something. He always had some project going like when we first got there, he was finishing Millbrook, writing Millbrook. So the next big thing was getting that published. And another thing, another big thing was getting the church incorporated. So all of those things involve fights. Getting it incorporated involves fights with lawyers. You know, you get a lawyer who's going to help you do it, you end up firing him. Getting Millbrook published involves fights with publishers. Some publisher expresses interest. It doesn't follow through. Now they're the enemy. One publisher finally did publish it, followed through, but got on Art's wrong side and they're the enemy. And he got interviewed by this magazine, High Times. And that was going to be, oh, this is the big breakthrough for the church. We're finally getting the publicity we, we deserve. And Millbrook's going to, this is our way of publicizing Millbrook. And that's going to be a big bestseller. And church is going to be get rich. He always painted this picture of, he always had he was always sort of the cockeyed optimist in a way, in a weird way, but it always turned out a major disappointment and because somebody betrayed him in some way. So there's that, that's the, the bad side of his personality that um, he was very combative and was always placing blame on other people, it seemed like. So it sounds like maybe person. he required a high degree of loyalty among the people around him too. Yeah, yeah for sure. And, and to this day, so like, Mary Jo and I and other people that we know who've left the church, this church still exists. Uh, they have a website. It's called the OK, the Original Kleptonian New American, Neo-American Church. And as far as I can tell, the people in it are his widow. He's dead now. And some of the people that we knew when we were still there, plus one guy who I never really did know very well, but just certain loyalists, you know, a few of them. And I think they would consider us as traitors, you know, <laughs> and they would think we're fools and we don't understand, you know, and so on. So there's that aspect, that that sort of cultish kind of thing, which, I mean, Art always denied that it was a cult and bristled at that term, but, but um, it sort of fits that pattern, you know, of mm -hmm. the central figure who other people obey, you know. Well, it sounds like probably due to his upbringing, he had this yes kind of template for worship and and liturgy and sacraments 
he was just plugging new uh, new ways of doing those things. Yeah, there were I there were little Christian elements in there. You know, like in the Boohoo Bible, there's one one little footnote thing that says official equivalences, and um, so it's got a one for peyote, one for different drugs, and for LSD, it says the Holy Ghost. And then he has a quote underneath it, the, the scripture that says, the only unforgivable sin is blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Which is LSD. <laughs> right. um, but also later on, some of his writings, this was after I left the church, some of the stuff I saw that he posted on the internet, he said something about regarding Buddhists as honorary Christians. So that made me think, he's still got this Christian, you know, I don't know. I don't know how what he thought in his later years because we had left and we weren't in contact with him anymore. But um, I always thought it was possible that he had in some way returned to Christianity in some way. But I, I can easily imagine the Chief Behe or any of those currently loyal members, if they heard me saying this, would say, "You don't know what you're talking about." You know, no, he never did that. And so you know, that could well be too true. Also, so I don't know. Upon leaving the neo-American church community, how did your spiritual life continue to, to develop? And were psychedelics still a part of your practice moving forward? Uh, yes, they were. Um, I tried uh, starting a church of my own after that. It, it basically was very similar philosophy, except I wasn't quite so sure about the solipsistic nihilism part. I, I did I think I did say life is a dream, but what I left out was the monarchical structure, you know, where there's this, your highness and all that stuff. And it was called the church of sunshine. And, um, you know, I wrote, I sent out a few newsletter type things, but it kind of didn't go anywhere. And I, I discovered I didn't, I didn't have a talent for that sort of thing. So kind of, I dropped that. But I still believe in psychedelics. I still believe psychedelics were a, a means to achieving religious insight. But I thought, well, maybe the problem is churches. Churches are bad. You know, this is a kind of popular idea of being spiritual, but not religious and all that sort of thing. Uh, and that we don't need this institution because the problem there is if you organize it around everybody agreeing to some dogma, then people might not really understand what this dogma means. Uh, they might just verbally agree to it. And that, you know, that's not very philosophical. You know, like I, I, I wanted to be more like a philosopher. And so um, sometime around, you know, some years later, then I decided to go to graduate school because I was working as a typesetter at that time. I worked for, as a typesetter for 11 years. I finally got a job that was, you know, pretty good job, made pretty decent money. And I learned a skill and you know, I could get better at that skill and kind of enjoyed it. Um, but it wasn't terribly fulfilling. You know, it wasn't, I felt like I could do more than that. So I decided to go to graduate school. Since I had a degree in philosophy, I would try to get an advanced degree in philosophy and become a philosophy professor. And, and I did that. So that, of course, had an influence on my thinking. There were sort of two main themes came out of that. I guess things I learned from studying philosophy at that level. So it was basically two dissertation projects I worked on. The first one I worked on for a while and then abandoned it and then picked up this other topic, which I did write my dissertation on. The first one was about possible worlds, about other possible worlds besides the actual world. Philosophers use that concept of other possible worlds to explain the logic of what they call modal expressions, which are ways that things can be true. So there's actual truth something can possibly be true, 
something can actually be true or something there or there can be something that can't possibly be true so there's like necessary truth contingent truth and contradictions things that just can't possibly be true so there's a distinction between saying that something is true and saying well it could be true but we just don't know or that can't be true so those are important distinctions and this whole imagery or mode of language of talking about possible worlds was a way to formalize that in formal logic because you quantify across possible worlds you know that you say uh, to say that something is possible is to say there is a world in which this proposition is true to say that is that it's act that's true period is to say this proposition is true in the actual world so there's one of all these worlds that there are, there's like an unlimited number of worlds of possibilities, but there's only one of them that's the actual world. There's this privileged one that's picked out as the actual world, that's this world. And things that are true simply are true in this world. Something that's true in some other possible world, but not in this world is a possible truth. And something that's true in all worlds is a necessary truth. And something that's not true in any world is a logical contradiction or an impossibility. So what I got out of this, ultimately, uh, I ended up abandoning that project because the thing I was doing was defending a philosopher's interpretation of this. And it, I discovered after I'd done a bunch of work on it, he'd already done a better defense than the one that I was doing. <laughs> so it seemed like pointless, my project. Um, but what I got out of it was but just this idea of there being more than one world, possibly, you know, right? Because what this philosopher named David K. Lewis, he, his question was, okay, we logicians have made use of this terminology of other worlds in formalizing the logic of these modal statements, like this proposition is necessarily true, or this proposition is possibly true, but not necessarily true, or this proposition is actually true, and so on. But we have to give an account of what these worlds are. What do we mean by saying there is a world in which this is true? And the reason the whole concept of worlds comes up is because if you think of one thing being different, you know, okay, so it's actually true that there's a glass of water on my table right now. Okay, in this world, there's a glass of water on my desk. But that's not a necessary truth. It's not like saying two plus two equals four, and that couldn't possibly be false. It could possibly be false. If I hadn't brought that glass of water in here, it wouldn't be there. And it would be false to say, there's a glass of water on my table. So if I consider the possibility that there is not a glass of water on my desk right now, if that little thing was changed about this world, we don't know what other changes that would entail. We know it would entail some other changes. It wouldn't have been true that I brought that in here. So that act of my bringing it in here wouldn't have happened. But what else would not have happened or would have happened instead? You know, that's where you get, that's when you end up talking about worlds because there's this whole spatial temporal right. history of events that can be changed by changing one little thing. And you don't right. even know what, how much has changed. You just say, well, I know at least that one thing's changed. I think I'm following you. So, so in, a, in another world, that glass could either not exist or it could still exist in your kitchen cabinet. Right. Those are still possible worlds. And anything, anything you can imagine without contradicting yourself in this terminology of possible worlds, well, there's a world in which that thing is mm -hmm. like that, or in which the world contains that thing. You know, like, like there's a world in which there's a giraffe in this room, but it's not the actual world. Okay, so David K. Lewis, this philosopher who's a very brilliant guy, 
knows tons about math that's way beyond me. He says, we have to give an account of what we mean about these other worlds. What are they? Uh, a lot of philosophers seem satisfied with saying, well, they're just abstractions. But he says, but what does that mean? And his theory was that they are actual. They're not, they're not actual. <laughs> Can't use that word. But they, they exist. These other worlds exist just as much as this world exists, but they don't actually exist. So his distinction is not between existence and non-existence, but it's between actual existence and possible existence. And he says, in what way do they exist or how do we conceive of them? And he says, they are just like the actual world. They are spatio-temporal holes where everything in that world is spatio-temporally Loca uh, related to everything else in that world. So in time, it has a location in space, it has a location in time. So there's a whole history there. Time comes in too, and all different spatial locations, all kinds of cause and effect relations, just like in this world. They're, they're just, I, I guess you could say they're just as real, except they're not actual. <laughs> so a whole lot of weight gets on, put on that term actual on that distinction between what's actual and what isn't. And his interpretation of what makes this world the actual world is simply that it's the world that we're in. That's the only thing that makes it actual. It's, it's just like saying here, now, this. Those are called indexical terms in philosophy. Their reference is sort of to whatever they point to. They don't have this sort of general meaning like book or table or, you know, like I say this desk. I'm pointing to this one, and that's how I'm, I'm singling this one out. And he says, that's what the word actual does. It just points to the world that we're in. But for inhabitants of other worlds, from their point of view, that's the actual world. So you get this very full, rich ontology. You've got all the possibilities you want to work with. And the way that that I use that, the way that's influenced my thinking is it loosens up this notion of possibility and, and, and like dreams, for example, uh, I can think of the world of the dream as being not the actual waking world. This is separate from the world into which I awake. So when I fall asleep and dream, it's as if I'm in another world because the laws of nature could be different in that world. That's why I can fly in a dream and I can't fly when I'm awake. Like a video game or a story, maybe. Yeah, just whatever you can imagine could happen in a dream. So anything that you could dream, that's logically possible. And there's a world in which that does happen. Uh, and dreaming is a way of visiting those other worlds. Although when you wake up, it's not like, it, there's no way to get to those worlds other than by falling asleep and dreaming. And there's no way to get back to this one other than by waking up and leaving the other one. So you can't, you can't simultaneously, you know, in a, in a sense, I guess you can be in both worlds at once because your body's lying there sleeping, but what you're dreaming is you have a different body because it's not lying there sleeping. And with that body, you are walking around doing things or flying or, you know, you, you can't consciously embody both, even though you, you physically can't, you can't make it happen, but it happens, I, I guess you could say, but I, I still think this, this is one thing I got from art that is valuable that I still treasure is this, the, the dream analogy, which is, it's a way I understand, it's, it helps me understand what life after death can be like. Because, you know, how do you explain bodily resurrection when it looks like when somebody dies, there's a dead body here on earth 
where we are who, who didn't die that we have to either cremate or bury or dispose of in some way. And that body sure doesn't look like it's ever gonna come back to life. Now, it, one, one thing you could say is, well, it just hasn't happened yet. You know, that's still coming. Uh, and that, you know, that takes care of it in a way, but even when it happens, or in the meantime, I guess you could say, what, what's, what's going on when, when you die, when somebody dies? Th this was always a stumbling block to me. This is kind of basically why I was an atheist and why I would not call myself a Christian for the longest time, because I couldn't make sense of the idea of the afterlife. I, I, I didn't think I could anyway, or consciously I couldn't. Although like Freud says, in the unconscious, everybody believes they're immortal. <laughs> Which seems you, right. did, did you have certainty that there was an afterlife or were you not? Okay. Even... No, I, I thought I thought I knew there wasn't. In fact, let me just tell you how that came about. This also has to do with my study of philosophy. This was not that long ago, within the last 15, 20 years or something like that. In my logic classes, I used a book by a logician named Raymond Smolian, or more than one, but he wrote these books of logic puzzles. They're very clever entertaining uh, logic puzzles that actually have a point. I mean, if you, if you read, if you work through them all and do his whole book, he's, what he's doing is he's helping you to understand this is which this is hard to explain, but there's a famous theorem called Gödel's incompleteness theorem, which says any formal system that is powerful enough to generate the truths of arithmetic is either inconsistent or incomplete. Inconsistent means Within that formal system, you can prove a proposition and you can prove the denial of that very same proposition. And that's the death knell for any formal system. If it's inconsistent, it's worthless. It means it's not getting you the truth. If you can prove something's true and prove it's false in that system, something wrong, very basically wrong with that system. To say it's incomplete means, this is the more interesting option. That means there's something that you know to be true independent of that system you cannot prove to be true in that system. So there's something, there's some truth that always escapes it. So basically what this means is that you cannot formalize, you cannot create a formal system of logic that captures all the truth. And there's, there's a formal proof of that fact within a formal system that was created by a philosopher, logician named Kurt Gödel, who's not as famous as he should be, He's as brilliant as Einstein. Einstein's everybody's stock example of the genius. Einstein went to Prince to the Advanced Institute in Princeton because Gödel was there. Mm. And he wanted to have conversations with Gödel. And this proof of Gödel's, I've kind of followed it. I mean, I've gone through it. You know, it's it's I can see the genius of it. Um, but there's a certain level of abstraction where I sort of hit a brick wall. So I can't claim I completely understand it, but I, I feel like I understand intuitively what it's getting at. Anyway, Smolian, his, his logic puzzles are designed to help you understand that incompleteness theorem. But on the way, you don't have to go all the way. On the way, they're just interesting, entertaining logic puzzles that improve your ability to think logically. And so I would assign those as exercises in my logic classes start off with very easy ones, then they get harder. But even the easy ones at first, until you get onto it, they would throw people, they wouldn't know, they wouldn't get how it's supposed to work. Anyway, he also written some other books where he just talks about his philosophy and you know his views on religion and philosophy and so forth. And I was surprised to read one day, and I was reading one of those books, he started talking about the afterlife. 
And he said, I believe in the afterlife because I can't imagine myself not existing. Now that's a pretty simple little argument. That's not very complicated at all, but it's pretty powerful because when I started thinking about it, I thought, first I was surprised. I was surprised that he believed in an afterlife. I thought, oh, this cold hearted logician, you know, he's going to be one of these, he's going to be an atheist and a um, hardcore science type and so forth, but he's not at all. I'm not sure how you would describe his religion. He, what he believes in, he believes in cosmic consciousness. And he believes that we're all evolving towards cosmic consciousness, which is like this mystical, you know, what you learn on a mystical experience. So I'm not sure I'd go along with him every, you know, I'm a Christian more than cosmic conscious guy. But, but anyway, that little argument, I started thinking, well, can I imagine myself not existing? I mean, at first you think you can, because from an outside point of view, just objectively speaking, yeah, I'm going to die someday. And when I'm dead, I won't be conscious anymore. So for all practical purposes, I won't exist. I mean, I did exist, but I stopped existing when I died because I didn't, I don't exist as a person anymore because I'm not walking around alive, breathing air and eating food and living on this earth. But if you think of it from the inside point of view, can I imagine being permanently unconscious? That's the question. I well, can't. I can't. <laughs> I can't because if I'm doing the imagining, I got to be there to do the imagining. So there's no way I could possibly imagine myself away. I can't imagine myself out of existence. All I can do is imagine somebody else's point of view from which I'm unconscious. But in doing so, I'm still conscious, obviously. And so I became convinced by that little argument. Now, that kind of intellectual conviction goes only so far. You know, I mean, it helps. And it helps me a lot because I am that type anyway. I'm a philosopher and I, I like to try to understand things intellectually. And if I can't, that's a real stumbling block for me. That's like why I was an atheist and not a Christian for so many years. But sort of beginning with that little seed right there, I started coming back to a theistic point of view. Okay, going back to the dissertation topics about possible worlds, and I started talking about how that affected me. The other one was personal identity, the concept of personal identity. Uh, that is being the same person over time. Um, how do you explain that philosophically? And that was my dissertation topic. And I worked on a philosopher named Derek Parfit, a British philosopher, who argued for a reductionistic account of personal identity where he says all that personal identity is, is psychological continuity and or connectedness, as long as it takes a non-branching form. <laughs> the branching bit comes in with these science fiction examples. You know, like in Star Trek, where you can be teletransported or other science fiction stories. So the idea there is there's this machinery that can scan your brain and body and record the exact state of every molecule in your brain and body at that moment and then scan, uh, beam that information to another location. And at that other location, there's machinery which can reconstruct every molecule of your brain and body from material there so that the effect is you, you say, lose consciousness here momentarily, your, your brain and body is scanned and destroyed, let's say. And at that other location, your brain and body, as they were at that moment you were scanned, is reconstructed. You come to back to consciousness, and it's as if you've traveled there. So that's, that's how it works in the science fiction stories. Not ever, the details are usually not gone into a lot, but that's how you could conceptualize it, how you can imagine it would work.
Okay, so Parfit's question was, is that a form of travel or is that a form of death and being replaced by the perfect replica? So that person is not really you because after all, your brain and body were destroyed here in this sending terminal and the, the replica that's reconstructed in the receiving terminal has no physical connection with the brain and body that were destroyed at the sending terminal, right? Yeah, the only thing that traversed the galaxy was a recipe, essentially. Right, exactly. But Parfit's answer is, well, it may not be identity, but it's just as good as identity. But that brings up the branching case, because then he tells a story. Suppose I've been teletransported several times. I've had these qualms about whether that's really a, preserves my identity or whether I'm really turn out, I'm just a new replica every time. And so I'm not really the original person. I'm just the latest version, the latest replica. And it really is dying when I go in there and get destroyed and my information gets beamed somewhere else. But I've put that aside because it feels like I've just traveled, but that's what it seems like subjectively. So one morning I'm going on a business trip to Mars and so I step into the teletransportation booth. I push the green button. I hear this, the usual sound, but I'm still here. So I walk out of the booth and I tell the, the guy who works there, I say, something wrong, it didn't work. And he says, oh, that's the new model, the, the new experimental model. Uh, you, you did get being to Mars, but it didn't destroy you here on Earth. So you're here on Earth and you're on Mars. And in fact, see, we have, the we have a little booth over here where you can talk to yourself on Mars. Okay. So now this brings up the question and more acutely, you know, okay, I'm alive because I didn't get destroyed here, but I'm also alive on Mars. But is that me, that guy on Mars? Is it me because I'm here, he's on Mars. So that can't be identity. I mean, from here on out, we have these two different lives, even though we- You share a history though. We said, yes, subjectively share a past history and memories of everything. But from this point on, we could go our separate ways and we're clearly not the same person anymore. So that's a branching case. Okay, so, so Parvet says we can say identity has to rule out those branching cases, but otherwise it's preserved as long as there's psychological continuity and connectedness. It's sort of like saying practically speaking, that's all it means to be the same person from one moment to the next. They've preserved the psychological continuity and connectedness. Very interesting idea. And when I first read Parfit, I was excited. I thought, this is interesting stuff. And it sounds like he's right. He's convincing, you know. But the more I read about it, and he gives lots of other thought experiments like that. To, and to his credit, he brings up what would be the most obvious objections, not, not only obvious, the most compelling objections, and just bites the bullet and says, yeah, well, I, this, I still believe this despite those objections. This is really the best account that can be given. But the best, the best objection is those branching, like that branching case. I mean, you can imagine a case like that. What would I believe if something like that happened? Say I'm the guy on earth, I have a replica on Mars and I know darn well that replica is not me. Here's how Parfit, as I say, confronts the hard objection. He says, imagine now the story continues, the, the attendant, the guy who works at the teletransportation place hands you a brochure about this new model and it, and it tells you about the advantages of, you know, now you can remain on Earth and conduct your business elsewhere. And then that guy on Mars can be either destroyed or beamed back or however you want to do it. But however, there, is a, there are some bugs we're working on. And uh, here, here's what it is. 
although it did not destroy your brain and body as a normal teletransportation device does when it's sending the information that creates your replica somewhere else, it did damage your body at a cellular, cellular level and you will die within two weeks. But don't worry because the replicas on Mars and otherwise, other than this brief period of two weeks where you overlap, this is just like normal teletransportation. You weren't worried about that, so you shouldn't be worried about this. Well, that's that's a position Parfit defends. He says, yeah, there's that little, there's that difference. It's a branching case for two weeks. Then it goes back to be a non-branching case. That's just as good as normal survival. But if you're the guy here on earth who's going to die in two weeks, I don't think you're going to believe that's as good as normal survival. What you're hoping for is not to be replaced by a perfect replica. You're hoping you're going to continue existing. So I could never convince myself that Parfit was right about that. So instead, I set about trying to give a convincing argument as to why he's wrong. And that's what my dissertation was. And what came out of that was something that brought me back, definitely brought me back to theism, which is there's this fact that Parfit cannot account for when he's trying to say, this is all personal identity consistent. The fact is that I know out of all the people there are that have ever lived or will ever live, I know which one I am. I can't explain how I know it. I just know it. It's just a given fact. That fact cannot be left out of any account of personal identity. Not only that, it's really the only fact you need to account for personal identity. It is the fact of personal identity. It's an irreducible fact. It cannot be explained in terms of anything else, you know, in terms of other things, making it up, composing it. It's just a given. Well, how is it given? I know for sure that I didn't make it a fact. I have no control over it. I just find it to be true. It's a very personal fact. It's the most personal fact of all. Without it, nothing would be personal. If I didn't know who I was, I wouldn't be a person. I couldn't do anything. Now, I could say, well, that's just a fact about the universe. The universe um, made that true. But if I think of the universe as an impersonal spatio-temporal whole of naturalistic events just controlled by natural laws, I don't see how that could account for this most personal fact. That's why I believe in God, who is a person. I believe there's got to be a person that could make this happen. I don't know how he does it, but at least I can understand why he would do it, which is he doesn't want to be alone. (laughs) So this is what brought me back to theism and Christianity. That and being able to make sense of the afterlife with this dream analogy, making sense of myself of what it might be like to die and be reborn, because I can't imagine myself not existing, okay? But how do I imagine still being alive after I've died and left behind a body that needs to be buried? The way I understand it, the way I imagine it is along the lines of waking up from a dream or falling asleep into a dream. So I've written these three books in recent years, besides the, there was the one about this life in a psychedelic church, which is just a narrative of, of what all went on then. And then there are these three books. The first one is called God is a Symbol of Something True. And I wrote that when I was sort of first coming back to theism. It's a sort of soft sell theism where I say God is a symbol of the fact that there are things that are not under my control, but they're under the control of somebody, namely God. Um, And that's why here's my fundamental insight from, from my psychedelic experiences. 
it's that everything is fundamentally all right. That's what I think I learned from my peak psychedelic experiences. And, and that's sort of what that first book is about. God is a symbol of something true. It's like, how can it be fundamentally all right? And then you come up with all the objections to that. People suffer. We die. We're not in control of things we might want to be in control of. Bad things happen to good people. How can it be fundamentally all right and, unless you're denying, you know, and we still suffer? Is saying everything is ultimately accounted for yeah. in, in the divine, uh, an acceptable paraphrase of that? Like everything is ultimately accounted for. Is that similar to saying everything is all right? Because all right but, tends so, to leave people with the with the concept that they're going to be okay with everything. Is that is it? But yes. that doesn't sound like what you're saying. Yeah, it's not only an intellectual. It's, it's not just intellect. It's intellectual and emotional and everything. So it's not just understanding everything. It, it does include understanding everything to the extent that is necessary for everything to be fundamentally all right. But it also means you feel like everything's fundamentally all right. You just feel it and know it like as sure as you know anything. Now, I don't claim that I do know it that way all the time or much of the time or right now. I sort of, it's a reminder to me that I have known that in these moments. And it doesn't even matter that it was only in those moments. All that matters is that I knew it. That's good enough. And I still believe it, even though I can't claim that I believe it as wholeheartedly as I did at that time. So that's what that book was about. What doesn't quite make sense about that book and why I don't, it's not my favorite book anymore. It's like, I, I you know, I'm, I feel like I'm always developing. Like I'm, I'm never satisfied with the last thing I wrote. Let's you hope know. we all are. Yeah. <laughs> because I, at that time, I didn't believe in personal immortality, subjective immortality. I believed in a kind of objective immortality, which was just means death can't erase the fact that I had the life that I did. So it's always going to be objectively, it's going to eternally objectively true that I lived just the life that I led with all the details of my life. And as long as I'm happy that I lived my life, then that's how things can be fundamentally all right, despite the fact that I'm going to die and not be resurrected. But later I came to feel like that's not good enough. That objective idea of immortality. I really want subjective immortality. I want not only to believe that you can't wipe out the fact that I had the life that I had. I want to still be alive and experiencing life after death. You know, because I can't deny that I'm going to die. That would be, um, in a way, I could. I could say, well, if I die and I'm immediately reborn, that's not really dying. But uh, you could equally well say it is really dying. It's just dying and being reborn. So, well, it's kind of uh, like the Star Trek analogy: the travel, you know. In the in the first yeah. concept, in the first concept, where your consciousness continued over, but the body was left in, spatially in a different place. Yeah, except the way I conceive of it now is I, I I do still have a body, and it's still my body, even though I can't identify it with the body that was in the previous life. I mean, it, it'll seem just like just like in a dream, you just take for granted that you have a body. You do you do things that require having a body. Mm -hmm. You're not just like floating around in space, uh, not seeing anything, not hearing anything. You, you have eyes, you have ears, you have a nose, you have legs you can walk around with. You're just as, you have just as much physical existence as you do in your waking life. But it can't be the same body that you 
that's in your waking life because that one's lying there asleep while you're doing all this stuff in your dream. But you do still have a physical body. So that's how it makes sense of the concept of bodily resurrection in the face of what looks like nobody's getting resurrected. And could you comment on this? Could you comment on real quickly? Like the, the Bible tends to lead us to believe that we can at least temporarily exist in a non-physical body state to which we're ultimately reunited to. Well, where does it say that in the Bible? Well, I'd have to, I'd have to dig for, a, <laughs> I guess I'm left with that. I'm left with that understanding. I don't in, really think in the, in the, like phrases to the effect of, you know, to be absent from the body is to be present with God. People say that frequently. I don't think it's biblical though. No, you may be on, you may be on some, I'll, that's something I'll definitely have to dig into. It could say that somewhere in the body, you know, I, I just don't remember it, but. Well, if, even if it did, we would have to definitely view it within the context of how it's stated and mentioned. So. Yeah, right. I'm tracking it, with you. It, I, this it, is just a, a, a concept I've never, I've yet to entertain. So, And in the Gospels, of course, we're told, and, and, and in Paul's letters, Jesus was resurrected. He's the first one that was resurrected, but he's the sign that we will all be resurrected on judgment day. So there's not, it's not explicitly saying what I'm saying, clearly, but it seems to me to be consistent with it in a way, you know, like, Paul's pretty mystical about describing that, you know, you become a spiritual body, but it's still a body, you know, in, in the afterlife. And like, you know, the, the grain of sand is perishes, you know, but, and the body that rises up doesn't resemble that, that grain that was planted. So, I mean, he's using metaphors there to try to explain his understanding of it. And I'm just, I'm using a different metaphor, but I think it's the same thing that I believe. I mean, that's why if it's not, then I, have to worry about not being a good Christian, I guess. Um, you know, I do have this worry. I, I know some people have accused me, and they will accuse anybody. They they would accuse you of the same thing. Anybody who says there's any connection between psychedelic experience and Christianity, there's some people who will accuse you of preaching another gospel. They're saying, you know, that's not biblical. That's not authorized. You're leading people astray. I've, you know, I've been accused of that. And um, I think those people are wrong. I think they don't understand Christianity. But I'm sensitive to that possibility. I don't want to lead people astray. And I don't want to be claiming to be a Christian, but not really being a Christian. So those things do matter. I'm comfortable saying that psychedelics is not essential to the Christian faith. I would agree with that too. I would I, all I all I insist on is that it's a way of learning the same thing that Christianity has to teach. It's not the only way. And in fact, um, I want to disassociate myself from those who there. There's sort of a several books, sort of a sort of a group who promote the idea that the early Christians used psychedelics. And so, like, there's a book called the Psychedelic Gospels, and they find. Uh, images of mushrooms in Christian art from the Middle Ages, and they take that as evidence that really this was like hidden symbolism that they, it's really all about psychedelic experience in, in, induced by eating psychedelic mushrooms, and it's like a wink and a nod, like here it is in our stained glass windows, so that the people in the know will know that's what this is all about. To me, I, I don't buy any of that. In fact, there's a a very good debunking of it. Um, there's a Facebook friend of mine named Ron Huggins, 
who was a, a biblical scholar and a, um, he has a, a doctorate in divinity and you know he knows Greek and Latin and all about Christian art and everything and he goes through point by point showing how this is all based on ignorance it doesn't take much at all to to show that their interpretations of these things in Christian art are just they don't know what they're talking about that's not a mushroom that's a nail you know for example my current position on that is I have no doubt that some people in the early church were using psychedelics either intentionally or unintentionally. You know, I, I've for 20 years, I've made my own beer and wine. So I've studied, you know, ancient beer and winemaking techniques. Mm-hmm. It was very common in the ancient world to mix all manner of ingredients into beer and wine. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those ingredients would produce a synergistic psychedelic effect. Mm. So I don't know that everyone in the early church had like a pure recipe that only contained grapes and water and yeast. You know, they were throwing all kinds of things into those wine vats. So it probably could have been the wine sacrament could have been psychedelic, at least in some cases. Oh yeah. On occasion, I'm sure it was just because of random ingredients. I don't know about that. But all I would say about the, that sort of that whole issue is the basic problem I have with it is it's sort of an esotericism. It's sort of it, the way it seems unchristian to me is that Jesus said, you know, the truth's going to be revealed. The truth's not hidden. There's not these secret symbols or that sort of thing. So if Christianity was all about getting high on psychedelics, Jesus would have said so. Right. I agree 100%. Yeah. So. But I, but I, you, you've convinced me it certainly could be that that might have happened, um, so that some people could have had psych- you know, mystical experiences induced by those kinds of things. But I mean, I think there's probably also spontaneous mystical experiences mm-hmm. that just I don't know how they happen, but they just happen. Yeah, I don't. Th- I, it puzzles me too why people want to because I believe in spontaneous mystical experience. It puzzles me why people want to force every mystical experience mentioned in the Bible and try to force some kind of psychedelic adjuvant in there. Like, it's you know, another, another kind of reductionism, you know, yeah, like was, was Paul necessarily eating gummies on the road to Damascus? I mean, maybe right. he wasn't. Maybe he just had a mystical experience, you know. Right. Maybe Jesus came to him and said, you know, why are you persecuting me? Yeah, it's, it's another kind of reductionism, and it kind of goes along with physicalistic reductionism, you know, where you try to get one thing that's going to explain everything. And I think that's sort of a basic philosophic mistake that needs to be combated. And there are various versions of it. You know, Parfit's reductionistic view of personal identity is one example of it. Whereas I'm saying there, there's this simple fact of identity, but I'm not re- I'm not reducing that fact to something else. And and I'm not reducing everything to that fact. I'm just saying uh, because of that fact, it seems reasonable to me to believe, more reasonable to believe in a theistic universe than an atheistic one. I don't understand the the accounts where supposedly this universe in which living conscious beings with subjective experiences exist was supposed to arise out of a universe that's completely impersonal, you know, physical in the sense of non-personal, non-unconscious, non, et cetera. One way that's a popular trend philosophically is what's called panpsychism, which is to say that matter inherently has the property of consciousness, but where it's, when it's so simple, it doesn't look like consciousness or, you know, there's no evidence of it being conscious. 
The problem with that is it just seems a little bit strained to me. It's like drawing out the concept of consciousness so far. It's like, is a sidewalk conscious? You know, if it, if it is, it's in some way that we don't normally use the word conscious. I mean, how can we make a distinction between something being conscious and something being unconscious if all of matter is fundamentally conscious? If nothing's unconscious, nothing's conscious either. Yeah, I'm familiar with panpsychism. Yeah, it's like... I've entertained it to a certain degree, and I kind of like it. In that vein of thinking, I kind of prefer Rupert Sheldrake's concept of morphic resonance a little more. Rupert Sheldrake subscribes to panpsychism, too. I mean, he, he does use that term, too. Yeah, Rupert Sheldrake's a very interesting guy. I, I basically like him and want to agree with everything he says, but I sometimes have doubts or feel like I don't really understand what he's saying. Like, and on the lines of panpsychism, what he said is, well, he, in a way, he criticizes the sort of popular versions of it. And he says, they don't carry it far enough. He thinks that if panpsychism is true, then the sun is a conscious being. I mean, if every atom is, then clearly something like the sun, which is this big radiant body of, you know, nuclear fusion going on, must be conscious too. And so he, I think, actually prays to the sun and but see that there, I'd really worry about preaching another gospel. Right? I mean, uh, that sounds like return to polytheism. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, all these but things. I don't want to are... board anything, you know. But and I, and I worry about Christianity, the versions of Christianity that are too narrow. That it seems like there are certain Christians. They see their main task as being to rule people out, you know, to say who's not a Christian and to warn against that. And that seems unchristian to me. That's like they're looking at the speck in somebody else's eyes and not the beam in their own eyes. That you know. And so, anything that is outside of their realm of understanding is immediately doubted. You can't have a healthy entertaining of an idea, even if you don't adopt it. You know, it's like right. to entertain such a concept, even yeah. for the purposes of you know psychologically understanding it, is anathema. Right. And, and to some degree, like tempting yourself, you know, with false yeah, gospels. Yeah, worried about being tempted by the devil, but maybe they are being tempted by the devil in a way that they don't see. That, that's kind of how I see it. Mm, yeah, very true. And by the way, what do you think about the devil? Uh, like I, when I first decided I was an atheist, it began by rejecting the devil, you know? And a lot of people, a lot of Christians, seems to me, they don't want to talk about the devil. That makes them uncomfortable. And they really maybe don't believe in the devil. Hmm. And so there's a question, should you believe in the devil? Or, you know, I mean, Jesus talks about the devil and Satan. Um, so, I mean, there's certainly a, a warrant in, a, in, in the Bible. And C.S. Lewis talks about the devil. You know, there's that the screw tape letters, which is like a, a, a devil talking to his sort of disciple devil about good tactics <laughs> and tricking people. Great book, regardless of what you believe about those things. But it seems, yeah, but it seems, it does seem sort of make sense to me to think of the devil, if you think about it in the right way. I mean, obviously, that could be bad if you think about it in the wrong way. I uh, personally have no, no problem with the concept. What's clear is the devil has to be weaker than God, right? Yeah. If you think the devil's as strong as God, you're not a Christian, right? I mean, here I am ruling some, I mean, Doctrinally speaking, I, I, I think it's fine to try to say what, what you think Christianity means or says, 
it's just I don't want to be jumping on people or or like you say, ruling things out, anything you don't understand, you know. But uh, if you're trying to understand something, it seems yeah. like anything goes. I mean, all my life I've been trying to, you know, coalesce an understanding of, you know, the Bible, tradition, my own experience, and trying to collect that into a co cohesive understanding, you know, that fits with between my ears. It's a challenge. And so I've arrived at a place where there's certain things that I anchor to, but, but I try my best not to be dogmatic because I see how my own theology has grown, morphed, adapted over the years. And so I don't want to, I don't want to be too harsh and forward in, in preventing ideas to flourish because I've learned, I've learned a lot sometimes by investigating things that I don't necessarily hold to. Right. Exactly right. I mean, the thing you said about, because your own theology has changed. I mean, I've changed my mind drastically in many ways. Over so the at what point were you right? That, Today? I always think my latest version is the best, <laughs> right? But, but it's only the latest version. You know, I mean, it's like, that doesn't mean it's the last version, you know? Yeah, me too. I mean, but it's, that's all you can do. All you can do is you just believe what you think you have the best reason to believe now. But what's good about that is, and, and this is sort of the virtue of philosophy, I think, because philosophy is basically, that's what it is. It's just trying to keep on asking the questions, you know, until you get a satisfactory answer. Um, and then even then, <laughs> it may not last. But the virtue is you're not likely to be condemning other people for being wrong so much when you know darn well you've been wrong plenty of times and in plenty of big ways, you know? So, yeah, I feel like we're all, you know, we're all on the path. And if I spend more time trying to search for truth, then point out all the falsehoods and everybody else's thinking, like I'm, how much, how much more truth could I have found, you know, if I didn't waste my time constantly berating everyone for the way I currently understand their false, you know, it seems like a far less fruitful way to go about this. Well, I mean, you, you can have conversations with people like we're having, and you can disagree and discuss. If you find that you disagree, then that's the point where you, that you want to talk about, that you want mm -hmm. to try to figure out, well, we can't both be right if we're contradicting each other, but we could both be wrong, you know, and we might find out something from that discussion. So there's, it gets tricky because I, I don't want to subscribe to a sort of relativistic, subjectivist theory of truth either because that ends up destroying the whole thing you know like when people say well that may be true for you but it's not true for me and that's sort of a way of being polite and saying well let's agree to disagree if that's all it is that's fine but the problem is if you start thinking that way it sort of destroys the whole concept of truth it's like if what's true for you is not true for me then what does truth mean yeah. all we're saying is you believe this and i believe the other it doesn't add anything to say that's true for you and this is true for me in any illuminating way. And it can lead to the misconception that there really is no such thing as truth. Yeah. Just whatever anybody says it is for them. I believe yeah. in absolute truth. I'm just not so sure I've got the patent on it yet. So yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> it's out there, uh, you know, and I think I'm getting closer to it. You know, yeah. and that's the goal is to get closer to it. And you may be absolutely right about some things. I mean, let's hope so. But 
about everything, that's sure not very likely given yeah. past experience. Not <laughs> me. <laughs> I've learned the hard way too many times. That's right. Well, so you try to concentrate on what you think are the, the most important things mm -hmm. and try to be right about those things. But those are the ones that it's hardest to know for sure you are right about. Yeah. And, 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 and as a Christian, scripture gives us certain things that, that seem to rise to the surface as the most important. And those, a lot of those things seem to be universally adopted as being a, a basically decent human being, you know? All the world's religions and wisdom traditions agree about something that seems like, uh, like some version of the golden rule, you know, as far as ethics goes, for example. So that's helpful, at least. Mm -hmm. That gets us somewhere. But uh, so when I was an atheist and a philosopher, I thought philosophy was sort of my religion. You know, I thought, well, that's that's all you need. You just need to, an open mind, logic, be rational, look for evidence, figure out what you have best reason to believe. And I still think that's true. But I, I've read a, I'm, I'm reading a couple of books lately by a philosopher named Donald W. Livingston, who writes about who he writes about the British philosopher David Hume, who's a very important philosopher. So basically what I get out of what he's saying is he, he's saying this is what Hume is really saying. And a lot of people have misinterpreted Hume. But that that philosophy, pure that philosophy, he like there's false philosophy and there's true philosophy. That's what Livingston says that Hume is really saying. And that the false philosophy is where you start off with this idea that philosophy is autonomous, it's self-ruled, it's, it's sort of the absolute standpoint where you just say, okay, I'm just going to believe whatever the evidence shows, whatever there's good reason to believe, whatever I can logically make sense out of, and I'm not going to believe anything else. I'm going to throw out traditions, I'm going to throw out authority figures, I'm going to just examine critically everything and only keep what seems rational and believable. And but he says what that leads to is ultimately just kind of a pure skepticism because you find that logically you can come up with an argument against anything you propose as a truth. You can make a case against it that seems just about as convincing as the case for it. So it, philosophy sort of ends up destroying itself that way so far. But then false philosophy, what it does is it pretends like it's doing that, but it's really smuggling in uh, a particular prejudice that was already there that's from tradition or from some authority figure or, you know, from some other source, not critical thinking by itself. And now you pick that thing and you rationalize all around it, build it up with all your reasoning powers as the single explanation for everything else. <laughs> and that's false philosophy. And that's ideology, and that's very dangerous. True philosophy, according to Hume, is to realize that this project of taking this absolute autonomous standpoint and saying, I can, I can look at everything critically and only keep what I can rationally justify does lead to absolute skepticism, but it also leads to you seeing that you can criticize tradition and custom habit, what people, what seems like common sense that people believe. You can criticize any part of it, but you can't criticize the whole thing. You can't just throw out the whole thing because that's your, that's your real starting point. And you have to accept that there are some things that that, that is a kind of source of knowledge. Absolutely. And, and so even though you, certainly, you, you should be a philosopher, the, the true philosopher, 
you should be critical. Uh, and it's perfectly okay and a good thing to be as rational as you can be and throw out things that don't make sense and reform traditions and customs, make them more coherent, make them make more sense. But you can't just throw out the whole thing because you're left with nothing. It seems like we can only practice these things like philosophy, religion, even science collectively, because yeah. indiv individually, we can't detach ourselves from all our internal prejudices. I can do that, but you, I, you can't. I can't. Right. But we can kind of do it as a group. Tradition is, there, there's got to be a truth in tradition, because now there clearly can be false things in tradition too. And so you can't just uncritically accept it and assume you're going to be okay. That's not, that's a false philosophy in itself. But there are things that can only develop over the centuries through traditions can only be learned that way, not in an individual lifetime. You know, it, it's the accretion of many people over many times, you know, figuring things out. Although imperfectly, it, it kind of distills things over time. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it always gets built up with things that don't belong, you know, but anyway, that's kind of what I've come to believe about. And that's another reason I've comfortable calling myself a Christian now because I, I actually like, and that's why I'm an Episcopalian, because out of the denominations, out of the varieties of Christianity that I know about, which is not, it's not like I've gone and studied them all or experienced them all or anything, but just given what I have done, I like the liturgy. I like the, the I like those traditions. And it seems to me that they have, that there's been this sort of refining over the centuries that just help as reminders that get you back to that everything's fundamentally all right thing. <laughs> yeah, and it's 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 open-minded enough to allow the individual to explore ideas, but yeah. it it retains enough, you know, rigidity at the periphery to kind of channel those ideas in a way that they're still true and still um, true to the tradition and true to, to the scriptures, but, it, but it's not as uh, narrow and dogmatic as some other traditions. Yeah. And what I like about it is that it includes the emotional side as well as the intellectual side, whereas philosophy is pretty much just intellectual. I mean, that doesn't mean that philosophers don't have emotions. Obviously they right. do, but the, the, the practice of philosophy traditionally is, you know, reason ruling over the passions. And by the way, that's one thing that Hume turned upside down. This is one of his provocative sayings was reason is and ought to be only the slave of the passions. I don't think he always consistently followed that, but uh, he did say that. And there's some truth to that. It's a little bit exaggerated, I think, but I just think they, they need to be integrated. You know, you can't really completely separate reason and emotion. That, that's what I think. You, I if you think you're doing that, you're not really doing it. So I care just as much about having my emotions satisfied as having my intellect satisfied. But I care about both. I, I, can't, I can't just go with my emotions either. You know, if something seems nonsensical to me and just purely emotional, it doesn't move me. You know, it's a, I say, no, that's not good enough. <laughs> Well, Jack, with all that, you know, we discussed, if you could leave us with some concepts, like how, how does the modern Christian, um, what are some ways we can come to view the application of psychedelics with a Christian understanding? 
what what are maybe some like big takeaways? I, I, I sort of feel like all I have to offer is telling people that I've taken psychedelics and, and that's led to certain peak experiences where I feel like I've learned something that is so important and it's like the supreme truth of all that I just know with every fiber of my being intellectually and emotionally of which I sort of expressed by saying everything's fundamentally all right. And that in trying to make sense of my life and live my life, I've come to find that Christianity is the best way for me of expressing that or living it out. Because I've studied, you know, I, I can't claim to be an expert on world religions, but I, I have studied world religions to some extent. I've studied philosophy. I mean, I guess I could claim to be an expert on philosophy. I've got a PhD in philosophy. So it's just of all the traditions, including the tradition of philosophy, it's the one that kind of brings it all together. And to, there's something fascinating continually about the gospel, about Jesus's sayings. It's just trying to figure out why he said those things exactly. You know, what is he trying to get at? And, and also Paul's letters, his explanations of his understanding of it. And then the whole Old Testament background, which is just this, I see it as sort of a, a, a develop a story of, of the development of the concept of God, of understanding what God is like. So you can't just pick one thing out and say, this is it. But it's, it's like this whole story leading up to Jesus and the present day. So what's the ultimate goal of life? It's being in the right relationship with God is the best way I can come up with is saying what it is. And what does that mean? That means one, not believing that I'm God. So believing there is a God and that God is loving and cares about me just as much as I care about my own life, you know, and explains why to in some way, not completely, because like not in the way I can completely understand, but why I happen to be just the particular person I am and not somebody else. I don't know. That, yeah, I mean, no, that's fine. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. It's in a roundabout way. It's, uh, <laughs> It's just explaining the gospel there. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway. I've just begun to dip my toe into your work. I've read on, on your website there, which is, if you could give us that again, I'll definitely be putting that in the show notes, but. Okay, it's my, you know, M-Y-I-A-P-C.com. The I-A-P-C stands for Institute for the Advancement of Psychedelic Christianity. And you got a blog on there. I've read some of your articles. Yeah. So I put stuff up there sort of whenever I write it. I mean, for a while, it was pretty much monthly. It's there, and there are periods where months go by and I don't put anything on there. But um, there's a lot there uh, and, you know, lots of links if you keep clicking yeah. around stuff there. I, I don't know how well organized it is. I, I don't claim to be a great website designer. So well, it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. I just went to the menu and, uh, you know, pulled down some of the articles and you can click on them individually. And I've read a few of them and started and a few by, of them. By, by date too. But sometimes that I almost regret that feature because there's this tendency to want the latest news, right? But that's how things were prompted to be by media. So you kind of think something that was posted like two years ago, well, who wants to read that? Yeah. I want the latest thing, but maybe the thing that was posted two years ago might be better than the latest thing. 
I'm the opposite. Anytime I start a new podcast, I always go back and listen to the first few episodes. Doesn't matter if they've got 2000 episodes. I'm like, no, I got that. Like starting today, that doesn't give me like a real proper footing for like the trajectory of this thing. So I like to go back. So I tend to do that on the regular when I find a website where things are listed like that. I want to go back to the foundation and, you know, work my way up. Yeah. Uh, Oh, you're, I think you're wise in that. <laughs> I haven't really followed podcasts of any sort all that much. Um, I, I read a lot and I, and I have a hard time sitting there just listening <laughs> for a long time. And I'm one to talk because here I am taking up a huge amount of time. Whoever might listen to this. Right. But, um, I love to talk too, but the nature of my my career is that I have long periods of time in not necessarily complete isolation. I mean, I can see lots of people visually, but because of the noise level and things of that nature, I can't really interact with them. So I can do my job with my headphones in and I can devour hours and hours and hours of audio content while I do my work. So and my son used to do that, listen to audiobooks while he was driving because he had a long commute. Right. So he would like go through book after book. Yeah, me too. Just constant. <laughs> if, I I could, if I could just retain it all, that's the I problem. Have, I don't have to commute. I don't have to work. Uh, I, I still have plenty of things to do, but right. uh, but it's nice that I can I can read whenever I want to, pretty much. I mean, obviously, there are other things that get in the way, but anyway, that's sort of why I haven't listened to a lot of podcasts. But yeah, I understand. Even when I'm at home, I don't, I don't listen near as much because, you know, I'm interacting with the family and yeah, and doing things that require my. Yeah, because it does require isolation with listening to that. Yeah, that's why I don't watch a lot of TV, because I have to be static in a, in a place with all yeah. of my auditory and visual, you know, um, abilities kind of concentrated on one thing. And I'm, I'm not good at that. I'm a little too ADD for all that. So. Yeah. <laughs> What is your job, by the way? Just interested, if you don't mind. Um, I work in manufacturing, so um, I'm not going to get too detailed because of the nature of my. Oh you know, yeah. It's a kind of conservative, traditional environment, and right. I don't. I don't know that my employer would necessarily have a problem with me doing a podcast, but you know, you these things. Know. These things get sticky. So, but it's 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 kind of your traditional manufacturing facility where uh, widgets are made, and so it's just you know, forklifts and machinery yeah. and, and concrete and fluorescent lights, you know, it's that kind of atmosphere. So the, the more I can still complete my duties and uh, extract myself and uh, attend to more ethereal concepts, the, you know, the happier I am. <laughs> I've enjoyed our conversation immensely and, and it's given me a lot to chew on. So, you know, your a lot of your work is, um, uh, it's on the periphery of, of what I'm able to get my head around sometimes, you know? Well, it's, it, you know, you're not alone. <laughs> right. Right. But it, it, I mean, it's not designed to be easy reading. Right. You know? So reader beware, but <laughs> hopefully if you just stick with it, you'll see that it's not so hard to understand. You know what I mean? It's like, it, for one thing, it takes a while to get into the style of it. Right. But um, and, and and like I may refer to things you haven't read and that, you know, so mm-hmm. might think, oh, no, do I have to read that now? But, you know, you just think, well, OK, I might read that. Who knows? But anyway, I'll just keep going, you know. 
Well, I've always, it doesn't bother me because I've always read things that stretched me, you know, yeah. being, being a bumpkin from, from, from down here in the South, the yeah. first, you know, the first time I picked up C.S. Lewis, it was a struggle, yeah. you know, and then I started reading John Milton, you know, and that was, that was, yeah. you know, pretty rough, you know, struggle's kind of fun, isn't it? I mean, yeah. that's like, I like difficult authors like, um, Oh, like in, for novelists, Henry James, for example, I don't know if you've ever read Henry James, but some people hate him because his sentences are real long and com complex. And they like, like say Hemingway, so the opposite of Hemingway. Hemingway is like these nice, simple, direct, uh, short sentences. And Henry James is these long, complicated, complex structures. And you, it takes a while. Stream of consciousness type. It's kind of, and 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 you think people wouldn't really talk that way or people wouldn't really think that way but you just have to you just have to say okay this is Henry James's style i'm going to see if i like it or not that's kind of what you have to do mm -hmm. and then anyway for me i like it cuz i like i guess i like the challenge of deciphering things you know so i don't i guess i don't like things that are too simple i feel like i'm being talked down to or something i write that way cuz i like to read things like that right but I'm not trying to make things hard or I'm not trying to, I hopefully not trying to just be clever or obscure things. I, you know, I was rereading my, my book, psychedelic Christianity, but I, by the way, I never got through my list of books, but I don't, that's fine. <laughs> no, but, um, you know, to prepare for this interview. And um, I, I kind of thought last night I was reading the beginning of that thing's a little bit too razzle dazzle, <laughs> but it gets better as it goes along, I think. But, Anyway, well, unless you disagree, that's the one I intended to pick up first. So, no, that's fine. That, that's my favorite. Okay, excellent. Can all of your books be found? You know, on like Amazon and all the normal yeah. places. Um, yeah. Is there a, prefer a preferred place? Where? Well, I always try to to avoid Amazon. Right. I can get it somewhere else, but sometimes just because I don't like Amazon being such a big, huge monopoly. Right. But sometimes it ends up that is the best place because other places charge exorbitant prices or, you know, they, they're just like rare book dealers and they just want to get all they can get. Or, or you get a copy that's, not, you know, somebody else's own and it's got underlinings all in it and stuff like that. Right. So I tend to prefer new copies, but I, I often buy from this company called Thrift Books. Um, and usually they're pretty good. Sometimes there's too much underlining and stuff, but. But I don't know about my books. I mean, there's probably some used copies out there that you can get other places. And Barnes and Noble will have that too, I'm pretty sure. Personally, I like used books. I love like yeah, picking up a book and it has somebody's note in the back and you know. Yeah, I don't mind unless it, I but I don't like it if they have notes written throughout the thing right. that I can't because I can't ignore them and it's just a distraction. Anyway, yeah, Amazon, you can you can get them there or Barnes and Noble or maybe I'll, any have, other. I'll have all those listed in the show notes. So Okay. Jack, um, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. And, well, you know uh, what? I can't thank you enough for what you're doing. And I'm so happy to see. I knew it anyway, but to see I'm not alone. <laughs> hey, that's why I started this. I couldn't talk to anybody. Like, I didn't know anyone within yeah. my, you know, frame of reference locally that I could sit down and talk about these things, especially not, especially not for hours on end. So <laughs> I think these things don't go together at all. And they're shocked to hear that anybody thinks they do. And I think they go together like a hand fits into the glove. I don't know. I don't know that I could but it's completely hard. understand either concept without the other one. That's the way I look at it. Yeah. I well, I thought I could, but, but now I'm not so sure. 
See, I never had experienced psychedelics without being informed through Christian, you know, understanding. I think I would have been totally unmoored and unprepared. Well, it was on my background, but at the same time, I was rejecting it, you know. So it's still the psychedelics still worked for me. But in the long run, what it it came out to this, I I came back to Christianity. And the, the psychedelics just infused my Christian understanding with a whole new depth and breadth. So it's like to me, yeah, hand in glove. But it makes me feel like I I understand the early Christians in a way that sort of I can like identify with them in a way, you know, like I what it must have been like for them. You know what I mean? Like this totally new thing comes along out of the blue that just blows your mind, you know? <laughs> and it's like this wonderful feeling, like, and, and that's, it, it, that's, that's there in Christianity, but it's like, it's, so many centuries have gone by that people just miss it, you know, I guess. Especially in a, in a culture like ours, that's kind of traditionally steeped in it. You, yeah. you see though, you see it, you see Christianity explode and and move like that in, you know, in different places around the globe where it's not been yeah. the dominant you know, structure there. So, but to us, it's just traditional old hat, you know. But what's funny is how little people understand it or know about it, even who they think they do, because it's been the dominant religion in our culture for so long. And I I try to encourage people who have abandoned Christianity to come back and explore it through a couple of different, other different traditions. You know, so if you were raised Baptist, um, you know, Go to a charismatic church. It's not going to kill you. Go to a go to a Catholic mass. Just try it out. See what you feel about it. See what you think about it. You know, spend a week learning about it. You don't have to commit to it. Right. And what you might find is actually it really does resonate with you. It just you that maybe that paradigm you grew up in was somehow incompatible with you know with your spirit. Yeah. And, uh, you know, hey, yeah. I was raised I was raised as a Baptist, and now I'm Episcopalian. Who knows? One of these days, I may be a you know, a, a Coptic Christian or something, you know, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to anchor to one tradition and like, it's the be all and end all, you know, we all have our own beautiful fruits that we bring to the faith as traditions. And I think it makes up a more a complete whole. Right. Richer. That's a good way to look at it. Well, thanks, Jack. Uh, Thank you. Take care. We'll be, we uh, keep in we'll, touch. Somehow. I, I will for sure. I don't know what we'll do. Let's do something. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll have another conversation. Okay. Good to see you. Bye. Good to see you. Bye. I would like to express my sincere gratitude to Jack Call for joining us and for sharing his journey of life and faith here with us today. And if you know someone who might be interested in discussions concerning the intersection of Christian faith and psychedelics, please share the show with them. And please join us in the next episode to meet another Christian who will share with us their thoughts and experiences concerning psychedelics. And until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you.